Hello, everyone. This is Food Talks executive producer Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny interviews Olivier de Schutter, former UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food and current co-chair for the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems. They discuss the European Union's new farm-to-fork strategy and how democracy and diversity can bring more equity to food policy reform. Enjoy the show. Before I introduce Olivier de Schutter, uh, I, I want to talk about uh, uh, you know the the role of heroes in 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 our society right now. We we we've talked a lot about essential workers and farm workers and frontline workers who are considered heroes because they are on the front lines of of COVID nineteen. We've heard a lot uh, around the uprisings that are happening across the United States and across the world in the fight for uh, racial equality and and fighting discrimination. Um, and at the end of every podcast, I usually, I used to, you know, three months ago, ask every uh, guest I had who their hero was, who most inspired them. Um, and, and I have to say for me that as somebody who has, has worked in the, the food system space for more than 15 years, that Olivier de Schutter, who is now the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, has always been a real hero to me. He uh, has dedicated his life to, to fighting for those who don't often have a voice when we're talking about food and agriculture issues. And he has he uh, brought to light issues not only of extreme poverty and hunger, but also gender inequality across the globe. And he's someone I've just greatly admired. I've, I've read everything he's ever written, I think, uh, and probably not in French when it's written in French, but he's just someone who I, I admire so much because he's dedicated his life to really shining a spotlight on the issues uh, of, of food and hunger and inequality and, and, and social justice. So I, I couldn't be more thrilled uh, for, to have him as a guest today. Uh, Olivier, welcome uh, to the podcast. It's really, really a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you. It's a great pleasure and an honor to uh, speak with you, uh, Danielle. And uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of the work of Food Tank and thank more you. than delighted to contribute in this webinar today. So uh, I, I want to give folks a little bit more of a sense of your bio. As I said, um, you're uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights. Um, you're one of the co-chairs of the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, uh, also called IPIS Food. Um, you served uh, as the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food uh, from 2008 to 2014. Um, you've done amazing things throughout your career, winning numerous awards, including a, a James Beard Leadership Award. Um, and you've authored numerous reports, as I mentioned, on globalization, agroecology, gender, climate change, and the agriculture food nexus. And, and I, I, I'm particularly interested in your role with IPIS Food because I think so much of, of what you're learning right now in, in the EU, uh, there, there was recently a the government released uh, 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 their farm to fork strategy. I think what you're learning as a, a European expert on so many of these issues has a lot of implications, not just for the global South, but for the United States and how we, we frame our food and agriculture policies 
Pre-COVID, as we were just talking about before we went live, uh, Ibis Food was going to have a, a meeting in, in Washington, D.C. about a sort of, a, 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 you know, changing how we look at food policy, a real, a real way to have a, a sort of a greener revolution, if you will, a really sustainable one. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about that work with Ibis Food. Thank you, Danielle. Yes, I, I think it, it is an important moment the European Union is going through today. For three years, between 2016 and 2019, IPS Food, the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, tried to organize a series of meetings, consultations, roundtables, uh, um, missions in different municipalities, trying to build local food systems. And we created a food movement that brought together some 250 organizations across Europe to demand one single thing from the European Union, which is a food policy. In other terms, an integrated, comprehensive food policy that would go beyond an agricultural policy, a health policy, an environment policy, an employment policy, a trade policy, and that would essentially create coherence in the system so that all the different sectorial policies that influence the food environment would be reconciled with one another, would be, um, uh, would be rather than contradicting each other or, right. or nulling each other, would be supporting each other. And we did this um, in a very bottom-up fashion with NGOs uh, coming from um, uh, the North-South development uh, world, uh, environmental NGOs, public health specialists, uh, um, consumer rights organizations. In other terms, it was a very wide network of organizations that had never worked together, but mm-hmm. had a common interest in reforming the food system. And after three years of campaigning and, and advocacy work, we did um, manage to convince the new European Commission, elected after the, the elections of May 2019, to propose this farm-to-fork strategy that will determine the future food policy in the EU um, for the next few years. Uh, there, is still, there are still many gaps and there are still many uncertainties sure. as to how this food policy will look like, but the principle is there and the, and the, and the commitment is there um, to move in this direction. So I, I'm delighted that this is um, inspiring perhaps other regions and uh, very thrilled that the US uh, may in the future move in the same direction. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, we, we experience the same things here. That lack of coherence, for example, I think it is a big one that you mentioned. And, and what has not you know, been possible in, in the U.S. Uh, for, for so many reasons is that bottom-up rep- uh, approach that you also referred to, you know, getting the input of, of, you know, multiple organizations from civil society, from native communities, from black and indigenous communities, et cetera. And I, I, I think that, you know, w- what, what may hinder progress for us in the U S is really the, the strength of our, our agricultural lobbyists. Uh, there's a lot of money behind agriculture uh, in, in the United States. Can you talk about how, you know, how to overcome the, the big money the in, in, you know, in, in big food and, and big ag? Yes, it is also one major obstacle to change in the EU. Of course, the reason for this is very simple. Um, the common agricultural policy we have in the EU is a very important chunk of the um, budget of the EU. It represents uh, uh, 58 billion euros per year, which is uh, 
about 65 billion uh, US dollars per year. And it is therefore lots of money that goes in the, in the form of subsidies to, to farmers. Right. For the most part, these subsidies are um, based on how much surface they cultivate. In other terms, how much land they control. So it's a very regressive policy, in fact. It doesn't go necessarily to the farmers who are the most virtuous in terms of how they manage the soil or um, uh, that creates the most employment and thus contributes to the development of rural areas. It goes to those who possess most of the land. And so um, the veto power of um, the farming industry is therefore very strong. How to overcome this? I think there are um, three ways to do this. First, we need to democratize how food policies are being shaped. Mm -hmm. And this is why we are proposing in the EU the equivalent of a food policy council, but at EU level, like the one there is in Brazil, for example, like Mm -hmm. the one we have in many municipalities and and in an increasing number of regions in the EU. So democracy, food democracy is part of what the future food policy of the EU should look like. Secondly, we need to provide um, a predictable pathway for the transition towards sustainable food systems. In other terms, we cannot revolutionize food systems overnight. We need to plan this uh, over a period of maybe 7, 10, 12 years perhaps, giving clear um, directions to the investors, to the farmers, to the intermediaries, so that they know what is um, planned for them. And although uh, we cannot really speak of a planification as, you know, in the 50s and 60s or in socialist countries, um, we do need some um, long-term vision um, mm-hmm. to, to, to allow people to, to know what they can expect in future policies so that they know where to invest and, and in which direction to move. Thirdly, and finally, um, I think it's important to realize that there are many local actors, particularly at the municipal level, but also at the regional level and sometimes at member state level, that try to develop local territorial solutions to food systems, to relocate food systems and to better connect the farmers with the, with the consumers, with the eaters. Very often, these local actors do not feel they are supported by the European level. Um, but it is a huge opportunity for change that these local food systems can represent. And so um, in those local food systems, the big players have a much lesser role to play and they have much less um, political power to exercise. So supporting these local food systems is also one way to circumvent the veto power of these big actors in the mainstream food system. Sure, sure. Uh, You know, and and those are all, I mean, that all sounds so exciting and very logical and common sense, but there are so many uh, businesses and investors and again, lobbyists who want to keep the status quo. What do you say to critics who say this kind of food system can never work? It will never feed the world. Well, first of all, we are now um, in an interesting phase where food is not simply um, a concern for a narrow part of the population. Many people, for different reasons, but many people feel that things should change. And primarily, it's because of the health impacts of um, the low-cost food economy we've developed, uh, the 
the rate of um, obesity um, and associated diabetes, cancers, and, and, and heart diseases associated with obesity um, um, are increasing significantly across most of the EU. Mm-hmm. But there are also people concerned about the environmental impacts of conventional farming methods. Many groups concerned about the impacts on the global of our productivist approach. Many people concerned about the disappearance of small farms. We've lost over the past 30 years in Europe about two-thirds of farms, mostly the smaller farms that are least competitive and least able to achieve economies of scale. And so um, alliances can be built between those concerned with health issues, those concerned about environmental issues, those concerned about development um, in the global south, or those that have a concern for um, peasant farming. And this alliance, in fact, is now becoming quite broad, and um, the ability for these uh, groups to work together is, um, is to, um, to, to, to build a food movement that can overcome um, these obstacles. As to the classic objection that um, um, small-scale um, um, farming and, and localized food right. systems cannot feed the world, this is based on a, on a false diagnosis. The problem today is not that we are unable to produce enough. In fact, we produce much more than we need. We waste lots of food in the food systems at different segments of the chain. And the problem is not anymore to produce more calories. The problem is to produce better quality food that nourishes people, that keeps them healthy, that maintains the well-being of the population, um, and that provides decent revenues for the farmers. The problem is not to produce more. So well said. And I mean, I think that, you know, even though that myth has long been dispelled, it, you know, it continues to be put out there. But I, I'm so glad you mentioned that, you know, it, it's not a matter of, of not producing enough food. We produce more than enough food. It's a problem of distribution. It's a problem of, of not producing the right kinds of food. We've been so good at filling people up, but not good at nourishing them. So the focus, uh, you know, sort of changing and shifting to nutrient-dense foods in agriculture can, you know, not only have greater health benefits for eaters, but also, you know, provide farmers with different sources of income and, and ultimately, you know, improve their livelihoods. And I think all of these things together are, are really important. You mentioned in a recent op-ed about uh, the farm to fork strategies progress that, you know, their monitoring and reporting will, will need to be, you know, a, a huge part of that. And, and, and there, there needs to be a lot of transparency what are what sort of um, fears do you have that the the process will not be sort of transparent for for eaters and for civil society and for uh, producers? I think it's very important that in order to organize a transition successfully, we bind ourselves to certain objectives, certain targets, and that we monitor very closely whether we are making progress in the right direction. And that is because the path dependency of policies and the inertia of the system are such that unless we um, design these specific governance tools to organize the transition, we may fail. And in particular in Europe, we have, of course, this major um, common agricultural policy that uh, needs to be strongly reformed in order to achieve the objectives of the farm to fork strategy. And we need to very carefully ensure that it's aligned on the 
ambitious farm-to-fork strategy if that strategy is to succeed. And we have trade policies that unfortunately are not quite consistent as mm-hmm. uh, at present at least with the objectives of a transition towards sustainable food systems in the EU. So we need also to move to um, more coherence between what we're doing internally and what we're doing externally. It makes no sense, for example, to encourage farmers to um, um, agroecological methods of production, to encourage consumers to eat more healthily and to eat more seasonal and local foods uh, that are cooked at, at home rather than, um, uh, than industrially processed foods. Um, if you do not, um, um, at the same time, adapt trade policies to avoid right. low-cost food options um, being predominant in the consumer's choices, and if you continue to expose farmers to, to unfair competition from abroad, um, from countries that do not impose similar um, health and um, environmental uh, requirements um, on, on their farmers. So I think there is a major inconsistency there, and we need, therefore, to have very strong mechanisms to ensure we do not deviate from the targets that we've set for ourselves. Absolutely. How optimistic are you, however, that that CAP can actually be reformed, that the common agriculture policy can actually be reformed, that you can have that coherence between CAP and trade policies, etc.? So the common agricultural policy has been revised a number of times uh, since uh, the first revision that took place in 1993. And the most recent proposals of the European Commission to reform it were made in June 2008, uh, sorry, 2018. Mm -hmm. And the response was um, extremely um, problematic. There were 8,000 amendments proposed by the European Parliament to the draft reforms proposed by the European Commission. So that, in a way, is an opportunity because there is so much, there are so many concerns about the reforms that are presented that now that we have the farm-to-fork strategy, the common, agriculture, the common agricultural policy can be rethought in order to um, be much better aligned with the ambitious objectives of the farm-to-fork strategy. However, there are two problems. One is that much will depend on what the member states do individually because the common agricultural policy essentially is based on member states preparing national action plans mm-hmm. called strategic agricultural plans to reform their agriculture. And member states may be tempted to lower the social and environmental um, uh, requirements in order to achieve a competitive advantage in the common market of the EU. So that's the first concern. And the second concern is that the main part of the common agricultural policy is the subsidies that farmers receive. And these subsidies, as I mentioned, are based on how much land you have under your control. So the incentive is to get bigger, to expand, and to capture the land of your neighbor. Um, So there's a huge uh, pressure towards land concentration and to speculate over over the land prices as a result. And so we need to change that system. And that's very difficult to reform because many farms would be non-viable, not economically viable without this money from the common agricultural policy. So it's very difficult to redirect these funds in order, for example, to support more labor-intensive types of agriculture Mm -hmm. and to support creation of employment. 
or to support um, the ecosystem services that, that farmers deliver by taking care of the land and maintaining agrobiodiversity. So it's, a, it's very difficult, but um, um, if the Commission is serious about um, achieving the objectives of the Farm to Fork strategy, it shall have no choice but to ensure the common, agricultural, the common agricultural policy is aligned on that objective. Yeah, it's very inspiring. And I, I think you're right that it holds a lot of lessons for what could eventually happen in the United States with our farm bill. So I, I hope we, I hope that, you know, all of us, you know, learn from, from what's been going on in, in the European Union and, and can encourage our policymakers to, to, to take some, some direct action on, on really reforming the farm bill and making it a, a, a food and farm bill and, and, and a national food policy that will really work for all Americans. Um, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Obviously, you know, the last uh, three to four months have been uh, challenging uh, for for eaters uh, all over the globe, for, for people who depend on, on the food system for their livelihoods, for all of us who are, are doing this work. Um, uh, there was a recent statement from the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, which you're a part of, you're a co-chair, IPIS Food, that says that COVID-19 has exposed critical weaknesses and inequalities in the food system. And, and I'm wondering what a sort of systemic issues are, are you think are, are contributing to the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on, on vulnerable populations? Well, obviously, uh, the U.S., uh, like the U.K., are uh, particularly striking illustrations of this. Um, people in poverty and um, uh, certain ethnic minorities who are um, uh, disproportionately uh, disadvantaged on the socioeconomic level have been particularly affected by the, by the pandemic because of the, the dwellings in which they live, because of the, the weaker immunity they have as a result of poor nutrition, um, because they perform manual labor. And so if they don't want to lose revenue, they must travel to work and, and, right. and risk being contaminated. So we all know that this crisis has illustrated um, or, or magnified these inequalities in the system. What, however, the crisis has also shown is the fragility of food systems that have um, encouraged um, um, the growth of global supply chains, mm -hmm. the deepening of the international division of labor with regions, countries specializing in a relatively narrow range of um, um, foods being produced locally, um, a system in which, if you wish, we produce um, less of what we consume and we consume much less of what we produce. So we depend on trade from far away in order to satisfy our local consumption needs. And all this um, um, system in which economies of scale, long supply chains, the international division of labor and hyper-specialization of territories um, has proven to be very fragile. And particularly mm -hmm. in Europe, we have um, witnessed two important sources of fragility. First, um, much of the work that is done on the farms is done by uh, migrant seasonal workers. And once the travel restrictions were imposed, countries were deprived of this um, very um, cheap and indeed um, easy to exploit um, uh, workforce. Um, um, the, the, the food economy of Italy, of uh, 
Germany, of Denmark, of the Netherlands, of the UK, was um, basically um, um, uh, very much under threat of being interrupted because uh, of the inability for people to travel from, from Poland, from, from Romania, from Bulgaria, mm-hmm. or from Ukraine. And so that was one uh, sudden discovery that we were depending on this um, uh, cheap workforce right. traveling from abroad. And the right. second source of vulnerability is that when um, the restaurants and the, and, the, and the schools close, for many small farmers, um, these are important outlets that disappear. And many farmers depended on schools and, and the catering sector and the restaurants to, to sell their produce, had no place where to sell anymore. Also because in, in Europe we closed many um, uh, farmers' markets uh, for long periods of time. And so um, um, we discovered that um, um, we, we needed to, um, to, to, to do things differently, to provide these farmers with greater stability, uh, to organize the logistics between the farmers and the, and the eaters, and to, um, and to develop local food systems that would be much more resilient. So it's, a, it's, it's now an interesting period where we, we can mend the system that has uh, proven to be broken, or we can move to something different. And fortunately, there are many experiences that are proving to work um, that we can seek inspiration from to build something quite different from what we have had in the past. Absolutely. And I, 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 you know, that resonates with me so much because that's what we've been seeing happen in the United States. And I, I feel like there is, there is no way that we can go back to the thing, way things were. As you said, putting a Band-Aid on, on that system isn't going to work. It w- it'll still you know, be exposed. Those cracks will still widen. And what I'm most excited about is a, a real transformation about how we produce food, how we eat food, how, how farmers and workers and, and those who were invisible for so long are, are treated. And I know IPIS Food recommends... Um, an approach uh, for food system reform that really centers on on agroecology and genetic diversity of of what we're growing and restoring ecosystems. Can you talk a little bit about why those things are important as we think about how ways to transform the food system? Well, I think it's probably not an exaggeration to say that over the past sixty years, we've been in the name of efficiency and increasing production, we've been moving towards. Um, farming systems that encourage uniformity, economies of scale, monocropping schemes, hyper-specialization um, into certain types of plants or certain breeds of animals. And this has been at the expense, of course, of biodiversity, but biodiversity is not simply for the beauty of diversity. It's also okay. essential for the health of the soil for the ability to reduce the use of pesticides. It's essential for resilience uh, purposes uh, to, to, to ensure that we have a portfolio of solutions to choose from in the future. And it is essential for the nutritious qualities of the food. Um, uh, agroecology, uh, because it promotes diversity on the farm, also promotes more diverse diets because this diversity in what we produce will have reflected in greater diversity um, on the plate of the consumer. So for all these reasons, indeed, um, not limited to the environmental concern for soil health and agrobiodiversity, we've been advocating um, for agroecology. 
one major reason to do this is that we need to de-link the food system and food production um, from fossil energies and, mm -hmm. and, and reduce the use of external inputs in uh, food production and processing. And so agroecology, short food chains, local food systems, and therefore the consumption of fresh foods that are cooked um, um, at, at home rather than processed by industrial means is indeed the direction in which we feel we should, we should go. The problem is, although many people recognize the environmental um, health benefits and rural development benefits of this shift, um, agroecology, short food chains are still not competitive enough because they are not supported enough, because the prices lie to consumers, because the negative impacts of conventional food systems on the collectivity, what we call the negative externalities, mm -hmm. are still not reflected in the prices um, on the markets uh, from, from conventional food items. And so that is a challenge we are facing. We must ensure that good food is also the most affordable and the most um, easy to rely upon for consumers. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up that point about how prices lie to consumers. We're not paying the actual price of the food we eat. So while it might be, you know, in, uh, inexpensive when we, when we hand over our euros or our dollars for it at the grocery store, the long-term environmental health and, and social implications of buying cheap food, you know, have, have really disastrous impacts. And the role of true cost accounting in the food system, I think now more than ever is, is going to become more important to expose, you know, sort of the lies we've been told about how food is produced because, you know, so much of that is embedded, you know, uh, polluters don't pay. So, you know, factory farms, large uh, a animal feeding operations don't pay for the pollution that they produce. Um, you know, there, there's a whole string of things that really uh, are, are part of that. And so, you know, making sure that people understand the true price of food, I think it, it is very important. And, and I, I am so glad that you, you mentioned, you know, diversity and how that will, you know, improve health. What we've seen with COVID-19 is that diet-related diseases are, are, you know, folks who, who have obesity or, or hypertension or, or uh, diabetes are the most affected. Their, their, their mortality rates are, are higher than those who don't have diet-related diseases. So really improving the immunity of our food system is, is critical right now. Oh, this, this indeed, uh, Danielle, adds you know, insult to injury or ad adds an injustice in an unjust food system. Um, we should realize that although it's in the name of making food affordable that we develop this low-cost food economy, it is actually people living in poverty that uh, um, are the victims of the yes. junk food that is, that is imposed on them as the only solution. And it is uh, amongst uh, the most disadvantaged socioeconomic groups that we find the highest rates of obesity and associated non-communicable diseases. So the pandemic, um, because of the comorbidities you quite rightly um, um, pointed at, um, is affecting these uh, groups of the population um, uh, most significantly. And so um, uh, we are now uh, paying um, a, a very high price for this um, idea that we can um, achieve um, food security by, by cheap calories being, being dumped on people um, rather than by robust social policies that ensure that good food is, is affordable for all families. And I think we should not... Uh, 
we should not be led to believe that low-cost food options are the solution for, for poor families. It's, it's the opposite. They are the first victims, and they are the ones who are made sick by the system we have inherited from. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I want to, to move on to a different topic. Um, when, the last time I saw you in person was in, in Brussels uh, in June of last year. I, th- I believe it was June. And we were both attending a meeting around the role of, of technology in, in, in food and agriculture systems. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on the role of both high and low technologies uh, as we, you know, uh, work to decrease the impact of global shocks, whether it's a pandemic like COVID-19 or uh, the shocks that will come from climate change or conflict or, or other sorts of disruptions? Yes, I think we should, we should uh, realize that uh, the problem of hunger or bad nutrition, uh, these are not problems that are technical. They are deeply uh, political and they require that we look at the, the food system uh, also considering the power relationships that exist within these systems. Technology mm-hmm. looked at from that perspective should also be considered from the point of view of who owns them and sh- who shall be made dependent on them if we um, encourage a greater use of high tech in um, food production. Um, personally, I think uh, precision farming can deliver extraordinary results. I think it can help farmers to make the right choices and minimize the use of inputs. But on the other hand, um, these are technologies that can lead to increased concentration of power in the hands of the, the small handful of companies that shall detain the technology and create a new source of dependency from farmers. Just like farmers today are dependent on a handful of firms for their seeds, for their pesticides, for their fertilizers, they now shall be dependent on a small number of firms for the data and the precision um, techniques they, they require to practice this type of precision farming. Yeah. So it's very important to take this into account. There have been, in recent years, um, some concerns expressed about power relationships in food systems and particularly the dependence on um, big buyers of small farmers supplying the big agri-food companies. Mm-hmm. There was, for example, an inquiry led in the, in the U.S. in the years 2011-2012 when Eric Holder was, was Minister of Justice of President Obama at the time. Um, we had the same concerns expressed in Europe. But what we do not um, uh, deal with enough is the dependency of farmers, not on the buyers, but on those providing the inputs and the technologies right. on which they rely. And so that is, I think, a, a sort of blind spot in the current discussion about the pros and cons of encouraging high-tech solutions. Absolutely. I, I, I agree uh, that it is a blind spot. And I think what concerns me most um, when we're talking about technological innovation for food and agriculture is that, you know, there's there's so much uh, research and, and, and invention going on. And what worries me is that one that there's not a very there's not a very participatory process that includes farmers from the very beginning of developing these innovations and two that often because farmers are not involved they're, they're, the, the solutions that are being developed are sort of not only are, the, are they imposed on farmers 
but they don't solve for the challenges that farmers actually need or want to be solved. And so, you know, you mentioned this idea of, of democratization before. I think we need this doc- democratization of, of how technologies are developed and who they serve and who owns them and who benefits from them in, in different ways. And so I, I think that's, you know, that's going that conversation, that dialogue is going to become more and more important over, over the next couple of years. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, the... the the equivalent of participatory research in the development of new plant varieties um, in which scientists team with farmers to identify what can best satisfy their needs. The same should be developed for other technologies, um, including those that uh, we we call, um, we we, we label under the heading of precision farming. And um, it's it's really important that uh, um, we take into account um, the, the, the needs of farmers and that we, we, we allow them to reduce their dependency on, on the owners of these technologies that will make otherwise farming that is already very um, difficult to live from in many countries um, um, unsustainable for, um, for small farmers. And, and, and the, the risk is that we, we will see uh, one small category of farmers that will perhaps prosper under that system, but many will be left out and, and, and will, will suffer negative impacts. Yeah, and, and I, I agree, absolutely. And I also uh, wonder about the, the implications uh, regarding gender, how these, how these, you know, so-called advances in technology, how, you know, women are, are uh, producing almost half of the world's food. In some countries, they're producing 70 to 80% of the food or providing, you know, 70 to 80% of the labor, often women aren't involved in, in a lot of aspects of agricultural decision-making. And I just think that this could be one more way that they are sort of kept out of the loop, especially in, in countries in the global South. Yes. When, when women farmers in the global South are asked what kind of agricultural research they want to see developed, they don't answer that they want, um, cash crops uh, that uh, can fetch a high price on the markets right. and that can be of interest to big buyers and give them access to global supply chains. Surprisingly, the answer they often give is they want plants that are easy to cultivate because they are very time constrained, that do not require heavy machinery to be cultivated, that can be cooked and that can be stored, preserved easily um, because they want to produce food for their communities. And it's very striking that um, the the desires as expressed by by the men and the women um, can be quite different. So that um, when agricultural research is only based on um, the, the, the needs as expressed by by men farmers who want to, um, uh, to develop as commercial farmers, they may not correspond to what is really um, the kind of farming that many women practice to feed their families and communities. Um, so it, it, is, it is, of course, delicate because it's entirely legitimate for women to also wish to become commercial farmers. And it's important also to remove the constraints that women face, particularly the time and mobility constraints that make it more difficult for them to enter into the world of cash crops and, 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 and to um, uh, be competitive 
on global supply chains. So it, we have to be very careful about, about this, this issue, but I think it's clear that uh, the gender dimension should be taken into account in those choices as to which kind of direction we want to develop agriculture towards. Absolutely, absolutely. All voices really need to be heard during these decision-making processes. Um, I, I want to, again, switch gears a little bit and talk about um, a TEDx talk that you delivered, uh, I think, last year about uh, social innovations driven by ordinary citizens and, and the, the, the need for public participation and policymaking. Why is that so important? And I mean, you know, looking back at 2019, that's a very different year with, I mean, I feel like in so many ways, COVID-19, the uprisings that we're seeing happening, the demonstrations and, and the fight for racial equality across the globe. You know, I, I think what you said during that talk is, is again, more important than ever. It's, it's more important than it was just a year ago. So I think we spoke a lot, uh, Danielle, about technological innovations, but we do underestimate sometimes the power of social innovations that right. are not owned by companies, that are the result of people deciding to change things without waiting for either corporations or politicians providing solutions. And in food systems, reforms today, um, I believe, can come from those bottom-up movements that are mm -hmm. developing community-supported agricultural schemes, that are developing vegetable gardens in cities, that are mm -hmm. developing these incredible edibles that people may, um, may, may, may benefit right. from in, in certain right. cities. People's fridges, for example, that we see developing in England or in Germany. Many um, innovations that are not owned by anyone, but that show... Um, that so much can be changed simply if people um, within their communities decide to be part of the solution rather than simply to vote or simply to complain or simply even to vote with their, uh, with their, with their dollars. Um, right. So that is what I, I, I believe um, um, should be emphasized. At the same time, we should realize that this movement um, towards alternative food systems um, towards transition towns and, and local solutions is a movement that is now gradually um, um, exhausted. Um, mm -hmm. People are tired um, of having invested five, six years in these changes right. if they do not receive support from higher levels of governance. And so it's important that particularly at the municipal level, without sort of um, emptying out the energy of these citizens and of these innovations, um, municipalities understand the obstacles these innovations face, support people in making these changes, um, amend local regulations, for example, provide some subsidies for the innovations to succeed. Um, in other terms, we need now politicians to um, uh, understand the potential of these citizens-led social innovations um, if we want to, to ensure this potential shall be um, actually um, um, the source of change at a societal yeah. level. Yeah, that that's you're right. People people are tired, and politicians need to take notice and help them move these issues that they've been fighting for forward and and make sure that they're realized. I think that's that's you know the key here. And I think you know whether we're talking about the EU or the global South or the United States, voting you know in not just your national or federal elections is 
you know, needed, we need to be voting at the municipal and state and, and regional levels for the kinds of politicians we want to see in office so that they can move those changes forward. Um, before I ask the last question, Olivier, I want to make sure people know how to get in touch with you and learn more about your work. They can follow you on Twitter at Deschuter O, um, and they can go to ipisfood.org. That's ipes, I-P-E-S, dash food.org. Are there any other websites you'd like to give out, Olivier? These are the most uh, relevant, and, and uh, thank you very much, Danielle, for um, uh, providing that connection. Absolutely. So my last question, you know, I, I started out this, this, uh, this live cast, this podcast, talking about how much you inspire me. And I've learned so much from you over the years of, of knowing of you and knowing you and, and, and reading your work. I'm wondering, you know, during this time, who is inspiring you the most? My, well, look, uh, Danielle, I, I really would like to return the compliment. I think the, <laughs> the work of Food Tank is to broaden our political imagination. Um, food is really essential on a number of uh, uh, societal problems. Uh, changing the food system can provide solutions. It's important for our health. It's important for the environment. It's important for conviviality and the strength of social links. It's important for the physical environment we live in and the quality of the air we breathe. Everything uh, that I mentioned can be um, positively or negatively affected by, by the way we produce and consume food. And I think the work of Food Tank has been absolutely essential um, to broaden our view of what can be achieved. And so I personally follow very closely what Food Tank does, whether it you know, promote certain solutions, put forward certain figures, recommends certain good reads um, when uh, interesting new books come out on this topic. Um, it's absolutely vital. And I, I have to say that in the U.S., because of the obstacles you face in federal politics, and not going to enter into the details of this, <laughs> I think um, we have no choice but to expand the range of solutions that come from the local level and, and from, from the, the energy that people can deploy to invent their own solutions. So the work of Food Tank is, is especially important in these times where really we cannot wait for solutions to come from corporations or to come from, from the U.S. Congress or the U.S. federal government. We need to work at the local level to show that certain alternatives are actually viable and not just viable, they are desirable and they can inspire um, by being scaled out from place to place, they can inspire um, others to move in the same direction. And so I hope that we shall witness in the next few months, like we've witnessed in Canada, like we're witnessing in the EU, a food movement in, um, in the US that um, uh, different levels of government will not be able to ignore. I hope that too. That's really inspiring, Olivier. Thank you so much for the shout out. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's always an honor to see you. A reminder that this episode will appear uh, on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And I hope folks will join me on our next episode when I'll be talking to Jack Kittinger uh, from Conservation International. Thank you so much, Olivier. Please stay well. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. 
Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system. 